Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode two of Invisible London. Uh, firstly, I'd like to say a big thank you to everyone who downloaded and listened to the first episode that I put out nearly two months ago now, uh, I think. I'm very sorry for the long delay we've had between episodes. It's taken a little bit longer to get the uh, research and uh, all my notes together for uh, each episode, and in fact I'm still working on what I promised would be this episode, which is the walk from Green Park to Buckingham Palace. And so this episode I've done uh, something slightly different. I was hoping to do an episode like this a little bit later on, but uh, I thought I'd get around to it now as it was it was fresh in my mind. It's uh, a little bit more straightforward for me to get into as essentially I'm looking at one book. Um, the book is uh, Mystic London, uh, subtitled, let me see, subtitled... Uh, Phases of Occult Life in the Metropolis by the Reverend Charles Maurice Davis. Uh, it was published in uh, 1875, and the copy I originally found um, was on um, Kindle, and it was a free book that you could download through Amazon. And uh, I added to my uh, my Kindle months and months and months ago, and I read it and um, I was thrilled to find a copy in the Barbican Library, which I'd really recommend anyone who's interested in these topics to, um, and if you're in London, go along to the Barbican Library, which anyone, wherever you live, uh, can sign up to become a member, and um, they have got one of the most fantastic collections of history books, uh, not only um, about sort of ghosts and the occult and um, uh, London history, but um, all sorts of subjects, but certainly the uh, the London um, library uh, they have there has got uh, some of the oldest books that you can actually take out in any lending library in the country. So this actually is a book from 1875 I've hand in here. I've covered it in scribbles uh, and uh, almost completely ruined it for the next person, but... Um, uh, if you don't have uh, the opportunity to go to the Barbican, you can uh, download this book on Kindle for free, or at least you certainly could uh, yeah, a few months ago. Um, now, essentially, yeah, the uh, this book was written by a chap called the Reverend Charles. He was born in 1828. He lived in 1910, so he lived through the uh, the peak of the Victorian period. Um, and it was one of the uh, a sort of game changer for London in that the idea of spiritualism, um, the belief in the occult, and certainly sort of high strangeness was uh, at the forefront. Uh, as a vicar, um, he was ordained in 1852. He was a Protestant, but um, he was very interested in the sort of high church and the Catholic ideals. He um, did a lot of work uh, alongside um, Catholic ministers. He was very briefly a, a Catholic minister himself before coming back to the Church of England. Um, he was married in 1855, where he moved to Paris to teach uh, English and the classics there. And it was at this time his brother came to visit him, and they together they went off to a séance. And it was discovered that his wife was a very good medium for... Um, uh, it was a, she was a medium in automatic writing, which was a way of putting yourself into a trance and letting your hand work across a page while holding a pen, and it was thought that you would pick up messages and um, words from beyond. Bizarrely, his wife, who's never mentioned in the book, I've looked online, I couldn't find what she was called, which I think is a, a shame, because she was 
or as you'll find out, she was quite a part of these stories. Um, but I think uh, she, or um, Charles admits that she didn't believe what was going on was true. Uh, she didn't believe in uh, spiritualism, so it was interesting that she was the, the medium for the messages but uh, never believed it. And I think that's why she probably uh, insisted her name wasn't left on the, uh, uh, or recorded on the books in any way. Um, anyway, uh, so spiritualism uh, essentially is a theory um, gained a lot of popularity in this time, and it was the thought that the spirits of the dead uh, exist, they're able to communicate with us, um, and not only do they remember their lives, but they, on the other side, they sort of continue to evolve. They um, gain the knowledge not only of the past, but um, possibly of the future. Um, they can commune with not only other spirits, but with gods and angels. And it was thought that they um, would come back and they'd wish to educate us on moral and ethical issues. It lost favour um, after about 1930, um, again, it's sort of the Victorians were very keen on this, but also just after the First World War, it was an incredibly popular um, belief that uh, even still today there are spiritualist churches that you can go to and uh, messages supposedly come through from the other side. But uh, our man Charles, uh, he was back in London from Paris in 1874. And he was, uh, by this point, quite a committed spiritualist. He was a member of the British National Association of Spiritualists. Um, and he wrote as a journalist and a lecturer. And uh, rather wonderfully, his lectures, this uh, series, that he, um, his, these talks he gave, um, were all at St George's in the East, uh, which is a Hawksmoor church. Uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll get to Hawksmoor soon, but again, he was commonly known as Satan's architect, and there's all sorts of wonderful uh, theories about Hawksmoor building. So it's interesting to see that this occult vicar was giving occult lectures in a occult church. Um, anyway, he uh, retired from church life in 1882, but he maintained that spiritualism and Christianity were sort of two halves of the same coin, and that he, he didn't think it um, diminished his Christian beliefs. Uh, he thought they, um, the, the belief in spiritualism would, was adding to that. Uh, so he died in uh, 1910, and uh, this book came out uh, when he was uh, 47 years old, um, which was, again, uh, 19, uh, 1875. And it is a wonderful book. He's a really incredible writer. And that he's there, um, again, it's called sort of Mystic London, Occult London. But um, the first half of the book deals with the city as it existed in his day. So he's looking at, it's, it's the early Victorian period. And he's obviously a man of means, so he can get into all sorts of places that uh, you wouldn't imagine. So it's not quite a... Uh, sort of Charles Dickens, sort of Oliver Twist take on the city, but it's close. I mean, the first uh, few chapters, um, uh, waifs and strays, he goes uh, where he looks into the East End and um, sees how people are, are living there, and juvenile felons. He goes to a school um, for young Arabic children. Um, he goes to a, uh, a lunatic asylum, as they were known in the day, and he, he's there to witness... a. A Sunday night dance, where they uh, they literally get sort of dressed up in their Sunday best and they have a band on. Um, he mentions that a very well dressed 
chap sort of steps out of the darkness and asks him where his... Uh, he's waiting for his carriage to go home. Um, this chap has been committed to the asylum sort of 30 years earlier and still dresses up in starched shirts as best he can and insists on asking the guards when he's, uh, when he's due to go home. Uh, he goes to a, a bizarrely goes to a, a baby show, one of the first baby shows, um, which I don't even think still. Well, this would take place in newspapers now, don't they? Most beautiful baby, um, but that, he, one of the first ones ever that take place. He goes to Battersea to look at that. He stays in a, um, a bakery overnight to see how the bakers get on. Um, there's a chapter on going to a slave market, would you believe, which uh, was still taking place. Um, and as we go through, we we slowly these were I think they were articles written for the Telegraph newspaper, which he was um, wrote on and off for throughout his life, looking into these sort of different corners of the uh, metropolis where other people may not have uh, had the opportunity to go. Um, but slowly, the sort of first half is taken up with London life. Uh, he looks at a few different religious uh, groups as well. So he visits the Quakers. Um, he goes for a swim on Christmas Day uh, in uh, one of the rivers, I think. <laughs> and uh, halfway through, he, he slowly introduces the more um, unusual and the strange uh, ideas which lend themselves to the title of the book. Um, but uh, one of the striking incidences, um, before we get into the world of the weird, he is asked to be the doctor, at a execution. Um, the execution was going to take place for um, a young lady. She was in her, I think it was late 20s, name of Margaret Waters. She lived in Brixton, and she was known as a, well, they called it at the time, a baby farmer. Um, a baby farmers, um, they were, they essentially they would take in uh, children, from other people who perhaps couldn't afford them, uh, it was um, seen as um, sort of almost foster care or adoption. Um, but in these early days, when uh, it was before they had regulated um, foster care uh, under British law, at the time uh, it was usual that you would pay perhaps monthly or every few months to these uh, baby farmers to care for your child. Um, but more often than not, they would deliver the child uh, with a lump sum to these parents who could often look after 15, 20 children at once. And uh, the problem being that the lump sum payment usually led to the early death of the child as it couldn't possibly fund that child throughout its life. Um, there was lots of instances where children were living in squalor um, or forced to work. And as you can imagine, many of them died. Um, Margaret was born in 1835. She lived in Brixton. She drugged and starved at least 19 children. She was charged with five counts of murder, neglect, conspiracy. But she was convicted of just one, a young boy called John Walter Cowan. And she was due to be executed at Horsemonger Lane Jail at 9am in the morning. Uh, Charles writes It was a thankless errand to be called uh, from one's bed whilst the moon was still troubling with the feeble dawn of an October morning and although streets were already white with the incipient frost of approaching winter 
and to see a fellow creature, and that of a woman, thus hurried out of existence. On arriving at the gloomy prison house, I saw a fringe of roughs lounging about, anxious to catch a glimpse, if only of the black flag that should apprise them of the tragedy that they were no longer privileged to witness. Even these, however, did not muster in strong force until the hour of execution drew near. On knocking at the outer wicket, the orders of admission were severely scrutinised and none allowed to pass except those borne by the representatives of the press or persons in some way officially connected with the impending event. There was an air of grim business about all present, which showed plainly that none were there from choice or any who would not feel relief when the fearful spectacle was over. After assembling first of all in the porter's lodge, we were conducted by the governor, a Mr Keane, to the back of the prison, through courtyards and kitchens gardens, and in a corner of one of the former we came upon the ghastly instrument of death itself. Here half a dozen warders uh, were scattered about, and Mr Calcraft was arranging his paraphernalia with the air of a connoisseur. I remember, so strangely does one mind take in unimportant details at such a crisis, but I remember being greatly struck with the fine leeks which were growing in that particular corner of the prison garden where the grim apparatus stood. And we, some five and twenty at most, and all in the way of business stood, too, waiting for the event. Then ensured a quarter of an hour's pause in that cold morning air, when suddenly boomed out the prison bell, that told us the last few minutes of the convict's life had come. The pinioning took place within the building, and on the stroke of nine, the gloomy procession emerged, the prisoner walking between the chaplain and Colcraft with a firm step, and even mounting the steep stair to the gallows without needing assistance. She was attired in a plaid dress, with a silk mantle, her head bare, and her hair neatly arranged. As this was my first experience in a private hanging, I do not mind confessing that I misdoubted my powers of endurance. I put a small brandy flask in my pocket and stood close by a corner around which I could retire if the sight nauseated me. But such is the strange fascination attaching to exhibitions even of this horrible kind that I pushed forward with the rest, and when the governor beckoned me onto a good place, I found myself standing in the front rank with the rest of my friends, and could not help picturing what that row of upturned, unsympathising, pitiless faces must have looked like to the culprit, as contrasted with the more sympathetic crowds that used to be present at a public execution. One of the daily papers in chronicling this event went so far as to point the moral on the brutalising effect of such exhibitions from my momentary hesitation and subsequent struggle forward into the front rank. The convict's perfect sangfroid has a good deal to do with my own calmness, I expect. When the executioner had placed the rope around her neck and the cap on her head ready to be drawn over the face, she uttered a long and fervent prayer, expressed with great um, nobility and propriety of diction, every word of which could be distinctly heard as we circled the scaffold. She could not have rounded her words more gracefully or articulated them more perfectly if she had rehearsed her part beforehand. Though most of the spectators were more or less inured to the scenes of horror, several were visibly affected, one kneeling on the bare ground and another kneeling and overcome with emotion against the prison wall. 
At last he said to the captain, Mr. Jessop, do you think I am saved? A whispered reply from the clergyman conveyed his answer to that momentous question. All left the scaffold except the convict. The bolt was withdrawn, and almost without a struggle, Margaret Waters ceased to exist. So, uh, it was incredible to, uh, yeah, read um, almost sort of a chapter brushing up against a, a plunge into the, the lake on a Christmas day, um, a visit to a museum, um, a short uh, bit about Darwinism, <laughs> uh, and then you get to uh, his experience of, of a uh, execution that was taking place in London in the, well, it would have been... Uh, Oh gosh, eighteen sixty something. So it was. No, it's a really, really fascinating book. And slowly but surely, we go on. He um, visits um, uh, a lady mesmerist. Uh, he goes to various uh, magicians. And um, Charles, he, to my mind, becomes a bit of a, almost a debunker. Um, he's there. He, noted, he goes to visit a, a spiritual um, conjurer who's a young lady who's come over from America. And uh, most of these spiritualists would be tied into a chair, um, locked into a cupboard, or there'd be a curtain over a cupboard that should be dropped down, and all of a sudden you'd hear voices or um, uh, chains would rattle or things would get thrown about, which would uh, suggest that the, uh, the mesmerist inside being securely uh, fastened to the chair was incapable of doing these things and so it's thought that the ghosts had uh, manifested inside the uh, the cupboard and were uh, performing these tasks um but he goes to see one where uh, all sorts of things start happening um a lady's locked in with a guitar which her hands are tied down but the guitar starts to play um a glass of water is, is drunk um ropes are tied into knots uh, a nail is hammered into a piece of wood but uh the chapter goes on, you think all these miraculous things happening, but um, he's he's rumbled the trick. He's, he saw her go in with a knife hidden up her sleeve and knows that she's uh, cut himself out. So he's um, debunking as he's recording. But it's really interesting. He, he keeps going back. He desperately, I think, wants to believe in these uh, these wonderful things. And uh, you're often asking, I wonder why he keeps doing it. Um there's a particularly good bit where a friend comes around to his house and his his friend is convinced that uh, all these um, so-called sort of psychic and spiritual phenomena are the work of the devil. And uh, it all gets terribly exciting. He sits down with his friend. I think there's, there's, there's two of them there, uh, or three of them in total, um, in his study where he's got a little... Uh, a little table, they, they lay their hands on this table and they try and summon the devil. Um, the table forthwith began to plunge and career about the room as though uh, a sailor or another personage himself had actually been in possession of it. It required all our agility to follow it in its rapid motion around the room. At last it became comparatively quiet and I received in reply to a question as to who was present the exceedingly objectionable name which Mr. Spurgeon, who was his, his friend, um, uh, who thought it was the devil, um, heard this uh, extremely objectionable name. Some persons I know entertain a certain amount of respect, or at, 
all events or for the intelligence in question. For myself, I feel nothing of the kind, and therefore I added, If you are who you profess to be, give us some proof. We were sitting with only the tips of our fingers on the table, but it forthwith rose up quite perpendicularly and came down with a crash that completely shivered it to pieces. I've not the slightest idea how it was done, but it certainly was done. A large portion of the table was reduced to a condition that fitted it only for the uh, <laughs> the match factory of Mr. Bryant and May. When we lighted the gas and looked around, uh, we found that we'd only been sitting for a very few moments. And uh, I did not feel on the occasion in question at all as though I had been in communication with his satanic majesty. And if I was, certainly my respect for that potentate is not increased, for I should have fancied he had done something much bigger in reply to my challenge than smash up my small chess table. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's good. It's uh, it's really interesting and in that um, you can see now on TV, certainly. Um, there's been plenty of um, videos debunking uh, things like... Um, seances and um, Ouija boards but uh, it's interesting yeah, that uh, at the time three men sat around a table and it, it lifted up and smashed itself to pieces and uh, even at the time as a vicar he uh, tried to attribute it to uh, Satan but wasn't uh, all that impressed and then going through it's I was slightly disappointed I thought oh I was, you know I was hoping that for a book which had chapters on uh, meeting with the devil, um, I was hoping there'd be something a little bit more spooky or supernatural about it. And I think as you read the book, you realise that um, Charles himself gets more and more disappointed and that these things that he so hopes to be true just aren't. And it's not until the very final chapter that you realise why he keeps going to these events, he, think, he explains he's been doing this for nearly three years in amateur and then I think four years more he, he studied almost scientifically the methods um, of the spiritualist teachings, trying to, excuse me, trying to find um, a certain essence of truth to it. And it's, yeah, the very final chapter that he mentions that uh, he had a very young son who has passed away and that he's been desperately trying to find some way to talk to his uh, his lost child and uh, again the final chapter excuse me I'll just find it here um Last year, while sitting at Mrs. B's, Mrs. B is a sort of blanked out name here, so obviously he's keeping the name uh, secret. Uh, while sitting at Mrs. B's, I was touched by the hand which seemed to me that of a small girl, and which attracted my attention by the way it lingered in mine, and the penacity at which it fiddled and played with my wedding ring. However, I never took any steps to identify the owner of the hand, and then... Some few months later, my wife and I were sitting, and a communication came through from our lost child. It was quite unexpected, 
And I said, But I, th I thought you could not communicate with us. I couldn't before, was the reply. But, but you have not tried for nearly two years. This we found to be true, but we actually had to look into the dates to ascertain it. He added that he had always uh, was present at the seances where I went, and especially at Mrs. B's. It will, I dare say, sound strange to non-spiritualists, but the initiated can understand the conversational tone that we adopt. I said, Oh, dear Johnny, that was not your hand that touched me at Mrs. B's, was it? It was too large. The answer was, No, it was Charlie's turn. But I said, What do you mean by Charlie's turn? The word was rewritten with almost petulant haste and remarkable plainness. Charlie's twin. Now Charlie is my eldest boy, and his twin brother was still born. He would be between 13 and 14 years of age, and that was precisely the size hand that I felt. And uh, that is almost where he, uh, he leaves his book. He goes into a few theories of, of what it all could be, whether it is... Um, a manifestation of a spirit, whether it's um, actions of evil spirits, if it's just um, all in people's brains, a, a mania or a delusion. Um, but uh, no, it was an absolutely fascinating book, looking into the, the mind of a man who was so desperate to believe in spirits from the other side, not um, because he's a vicar and he wants proof that he's uh, not wasted his life, but because he wanted to have the opportunity to talk to the child that he lost, and um, and he ends up talking to the uh, yeah the baby that they, they never had. Of course, whether it's uh, true or not, I've, uh, it's not my place to say, but um, it was uh, no, a really, really fascinating book, and there's, there's plenty more in there, I don't want to... I read all the best bits, but um, I can recommend if you've got a Kindle, um, look it up, it is free. Um, Mystic London by, uh, oh gosh, uh, what's his full name? By, here we are, the Reverend Charles Maurice Davis. Um, and uh, I think the, uh, the last and final quote I'll take uh, directly from him. Um, I used to think of ghosts as big things, but that was before I knew them. I should think that no more. I don't think I'd be more startled of meeting a ghost now than a donkey on a dark night, and I would infinitely sooner tackle a spirit than a burglar. So that was just a little short uh, a bonus podcast um, before I get... Uh, hopefully this week we'll be recording uh, the uh, uh, next episode, which is going to be the walk from Green Park to uh, Buckingham Palace, uh, which has been actually amazing fun to look into. Um, obviously, everyone sort of knows that area, and everyone knows what Buckingham Palace looks like, but you may not know that uh, the Duke of Edinburgh once sent one of his um, uh, men off to have an interview with a space alien so that should be uh, quite a good episode um, I'd like to thank everyone for the kind words and messages they've sent through uh, regarding the first episode um, there's been lots of good uh, reviews on um, iTunes which is very uh, kind of everyone I hope 
this episode's lived up to the high expectations that everyone has. I'm sorry it's taken so long to get through to it. But as ever, um, you can get in contact with me uh, in all sorts of different ways. Let me have a quick look and see what they all are. I have to write them down because I do not remember them. Um, so there's uh, invisiblelondon at mail.com. Uh, I am on uh, Instagram uh, at the Invisible London, which is all one word. Uh, there's a Facebook group, which is Invisible London, an occult guide to the city. And uh, I'm on Twitter as well, which is, uh, I think, the Invisible LDN. So uh, if you want to get in contact with me in any of those places, uh, do feel free. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all have a very good evening.